Well, it's a joy to be before you. Um, when, when Danny asked me, rather informed me that I was going to preach, um, I was a little bit taken aback because um, I, there's no reason that he should ask me to preach. I don't possess any special gifts of any kind. And yet I'm thankful that Danny was willing uh, to let the interns get before you and, and practice preaching the Word of God. Um, and I, I'm thankful to be an intern at Smyrna. I'm thankful um, for you as the body that you guys have shown us the love of Christ. It's been a blessing to serve you. It's been a joy to be an intern. As much fun as it's been, um, I'm thankful for these kinds of opportunities as they are growth opportunities. So would you bear with me as I uh, take the pulpit for the first time ever? Um, But in all sincerity, I'm very thankful for SPC. Very thankful for you as the people of Smyrna and the love that that you all have shown us as interns, that you've shown me. Um, Very thankful for this opportunity. Our text is an interesting one. Luke 16, Sermon on the uh, sermon at the dinner table, if you want to call it that. Parable of the shrewd manager, and it it's quite unusual. It's quite challenging. J.C. Ryle, an, an Anglican uh, pastor, Anglican theologian, writes of this parable that there are knots in it which will perhaps never be untied until the Lord comes again. So naturally, as a young seminarian, I thought this would be a great text for me to to take uh, my first time in the pulpit. Uh, And yet, this text is important because it's part of the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God, canon of scripture. And being part of the canon of scripture, we're to tackle it and and take it uh, as it's given to us with, with using other scripture to help us interpret that. And I was originally supposed to preach on Psalm 34, um, but Danny told me that I could preach on whatever passage I wanted to. Uh, the, the reason I chose this parable is because of many conversations with some seminary professor, professors, uh, some conversations with Bruce Lowe, who is my Gospels professor at RTS, uh, a gentleman named Jonathan Rowe, who is a, a church planner in Dublin, Georgia, a PCA church planner. Uh, through, through many of the conversations with those men, uh, I realized, as strange and unusual as this passage is, that it actually provides a massive gospel hope. And so, this parable has become one of my favorite parables of all. It's become one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Historically, this parable has been about financial faithfulness, stewarding well that which the Lord has given us. Um, As they tracked for financial faithfulness, this passage is is a great one. Um, That's that's a very fair reading of this parable. Financial faithfulness is important. Stewarding well the wealth that the Lord has given us is important. Um, when, When God blesses us financially, we we are certainly obliged, privileged to be able to serve others who are in need. 
So looking at this passage as a tract for financial faithfulness is incredibly valid. Um, But I think a a purely financial reading of this parable misses actually a a greater, grander kingdom message that, that is the basis of all the parables of Jesus. When Jesus teaches in parables, he, he teaches for a purpose. He writes that, um, he tells us that parables concern the kingdom of God. And so in light of reading this parable, we need to take it in, in light of how Jesus actually taught, why he used parables. Um, I would like to humbly suggest an alternative reading of this parable that I think in light of what the scriptures say, where this passage fits in context helps us to actually understand a grander and more glorious rendering of this parable. I think think it's clear. Uh, I think in terms of the context that uh, the the broader pericope pericope of where we find this passage, I think that a careful, close examination reveals certainly a more kingdom-oriented understanding of the parable of the shrewd manager. And so before we actually look at this passage, let's ask the Lord's blessing before we open his word. Lord, you've promised us in Isaiah that the word that proceeds from your mouth will water the earth, will give seed to the sower, and will be bread to the eater. Indeed, Lord, your word does not return to you void, but it accomplishes that which you purpose. And so, Lord, we plead with you, work through your word. Would you increase, Lord, and would this broken vessel decrease? And yet, Lord, speak to us as we come to you in your word even now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, opening at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Jesus also said, To the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. The manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He answered, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, upon first reading this parable, it, it could be, we'd be quick to say, is, is Jesus actually commending dishonesty? Is he commending uh, unfaithful stewarding of our riches? Um, and I think it's important to note at the outset that uh, the, man, the master in this parable does not commend the manager for his 
wickedness, for his integrity. He had no integrity, clearly. Rather, he commends the manager for his ingenuity. And that's, that's the light in which I want to read this parable, in which I think Scripture calls us to read this parable. Um, but it's important to note that whenever we read Scripture, context is important. And this is true in any situation. Uh, if you've heard, out of context, any of the nicknames that our dear Danny and Joel have um, come up with for myself, you would indeed um, you'd get an insight into the depravity of their mind, is, is what would happen. Um, and then if you'd actually heard the stories of how those nicknames came about, I pray you don't hear those stories. Um, context is important. Danny would tell you that. Joel would tell you that. Scripture is the exact same. When we read a passage of Scripture, we look at it in the context that it lies. And so because context is so important, we have to look at this parable in the context of where it fits within the Gospel of Luke and within the larger context of Luke-Acts. Remember that Luke himself wrote both his own Gospel and the volume two of his work, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, When Luke describes his first volume, his gospel, he calls it the work that Jesus began to do and teach. And that's in the opening of Acts chapter one. And if that's true, we can call Acts the work that Jesus continued to do and teach from heaven, from his heavenly seat after he ascended to the Father. And in order to understand the, the larger theme of Luke Acts, it's important to note how Acts ends. Acts chapter 28, Paul is spreading the gospel in Rome after the Jews rejected both Paul and the gospel that he was preaching, the Jewish leaders in Rome. In verse 28 of chapter 28 of Acts, Paul says, Let it be known that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is coming off of the heels of of Paul busting his butt trying to make it abundantly clear to the Jewish leaders in Rome, guys, here is the summation of the Old Testament that you have. It's Jesus. It's the man, Jesus. Paul expounds the entire Old Testament. Acts chapter 28 tells us, expounds the entire Old Testament to the Jewish leaders, and they just don't get it. What a summary of the Old Testament. That the promise of the coming Messiah was littered throughout the law and the prophets. And the Jews who had so aggressively held tight that law missed the whole message of the Old Testament. What a reminder for us as we read our Bibles, as we are um, here this evening at the evening service, that when we come, when we attend church, when we read our Bibles, when we perform these these activities that are common for Christians, may we never forget why we're doing what we're doing. Because if we do, we run the risk of beginning to go through the motions. And friends, the lackluster loss of gospel understanding is a gradual process. Rarely uh, have I met people who grew up in the church and then one day, all of a sudden, they just don't believe the Bible anymore. No, rather, it's been a gradual process of falling away, 
going through the motions, and people forget why they do what they do, why we gather together as a body. May we never be described like that. So Acts 28, Paul says, Roman Jews, you guys have completely missed it. I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Praise God for that. Uh, When he writes in Acts 28, um, they will listen. The Gentiles were deemed unclean and not a part of God's family. And yet, they are the ones who actually listen and receive the gospel, which Paul gives to them. So, in light of how Acts ends, it's important to note how Luke, the first volume of Luke, begins. Luke brings out John the Baptist's ministry as a forerunner to Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist preaches repentance of sins. He humbles people with the law, that there's no way they can keep the law themselves. Truly, none of us are righteous, is the message that, that John comes preaching from the wilderness. And this is incredibly humbling. For people to be ready to receive the promised Messiah, they have to first realize what they need to be saved from. And the Jews of the day, having the mindset of, okay, the, the, the law is mine, the Torah is mine, uh, and, and having a pure head knowledge, needed to understand, wait, why do we have a Messiah coming? Well, John the Baptist says, guys, y'all cannot keep the law. And yet, the promised Messiah offers salvation. Repent and believe. John was making straight the way for the Lord, making straight the paths for the Lord. What a humbling message. Not only does Jesus, when he comes, bring salvation, but that salvation produces worship. What a mind-blowing message that the man Jesus, as he came to redeem his people, brought not only salvation for the Jews, his own people, but salvation for the world. That's the theme of the book of Acts, as we've been going through on Sunday mornings before Advent, that the gospel is not for Jews alone, but it's for the Gentiles. And in fact, as the Jews reject Jesus... The Gentiles receive him by God's grace and by the preaching of the word of God. The Lord uses broken men like Paul to take forth the message of the gospel. And praise God for that. So when the Jews reject Jesus, before I get to that, let me back up. Because the gospel is such a mind-blowing message, that should humble us to the dirt. Tim Keller uh, said once of the gospel that the gospel both humbles us to the ground and exalts us to the sky at the same time. We realize our need, we realize our inadequacy, and yet we've been propped up by the goodness and by the grace of Jesus. Truly the gospel humbles us to the dirt and exalts us to the sky. So when the Jews reject Jesus and the gospel, Paul takes the gospel elsewhere. Jesus commands the gospel to be taken elsewhere. Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, for sure, also in Judea, also in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Jews, the original ones who had the law, the, containing the Old Testament concept of hesed, 
had completely misunderstood that which they held so closely. This, this concept of hesed, um, it's an Old Testament concept that, again, is littered throughout the Old Testament, where God is the master financial planner, if you will, that he provides for the needs of those who are in need, using people who he's blessed, that they might actually bring the provision. And the whole way through, the one who's being blessed, the one who is doing the blessing, all they can do is praise God for his sustenance because God is the one who supplies the entire process, this master financial planner, if you will. Uh, And so the Jews, as they rejected the gospel, were condemned by Paul in Acts chapter 28. And the Gentiles, the outsiders, received the gospel. And so the theme of Luke-Acts, in which we need to read this parable, seems to be that the Jews who were thought to be the ones who were in are actually out. And the Gentiles, who were deemed unclean, outsiders, are the ones who actually hear and receive the gospel. It's this big flip between the beginning of Luke and the end of Acts where the gospel goes out and is received where it's heard. And yet, the Jews just don't get it. But so the theme of Luke-Acts, the grand theme that I'd like to bear in mind as we dig into this parable is that the ones that you thought were in are out. And the ones that you thought were out, who were originally out, are actually in. It's this idea of those who are exalted will be humbled and the ones who are humble will be exalted. Isn't that the gospel message? That the outworking of the gospel being taken to Jerusalem and then to uh, the Gentile nations is actually a picture of what is required to be brought low in order that we might understand the gospel. That if, we hum- if we humble ourselves, if by God's grace we're humbled, we begin to understand, man, I'm in need. And Jesus offers exactly what I'm looking for. And yet, the flip side of that is, if we're too proud to recognize that we need the gospel message, we'll miss it completely. The Pharisees are a picture of that. Old Israel is a picture of that. The whole Old Testament was Israel um, persecuting the very prophets who were bringing them the good news of the Messiah to come. And they just didn't get it. May we never be described that way as hearers of the gospel, that we would hear, recognize our need, and would come to the Lord, come to the cross by faith. This is nothing new. This concept of hesed that, that is encapsulated in Luke-Acts, like I said, it's all over the Old Testament. God's loving kindness The lowly have been exalted. God supplies for those who are in need and uses people as means to accomplish that purpose. When someone's in need, God supplies for their need by using somebody else who has been blessed to provide for them. As a result, God gets the glory from the one who is in need, praising God's name. God gets the glory from the one who does the blessing, who receives that which was never his in the first place. It's all about, the whole process is all about God receiving glory 
in using means to accomplish his purposes. And those means, praise God, are us. That when we show this has said, having received this has said and understood it, when we, when we show this to others, when we love somebody well, financially or, or otherwise, we actually get to take part in the very thing that God is doing for us, that he's done in our own lives. That the partaking of hesed is a small taste of what's actually been done for us. It's a grand and glorious thing that we get to enjoy and experience. So that's the Old Testament concept of hesed. Luke's purpose for writing his first and second volume is that the gospel is not only for Jews, but for Gentiles also. Uh, As an aside, if you are like me and are not an ethnic Jew, that is very good news. Because if Paul hadn't taken the gospel out of Jerusalem and to the nations, to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, I wouldn't be a Christian. And um, I know that's probably true for a lot of us. Uh, Not being ethnically Jewish means that you were originally outside God's covenant in the eyes of the Old Testament. And so because the Jews rejected the gospel, the gospel was driven out from Jerusalem and brought to the nations. Praise God. That's why Smyrna Prez exists. That's why missions is important. Because we've, we've oriented our eyes and our hearts on the very things that bring destruction and pain and shame. And we need to be reoriented on the only thing that actually provides salvation. The only thing that will actually grant us freedom from that which enslaves us. So praise God for the going out of the gospel. Okay, to our parable. What is the cultural setting at the time that Jesus is is living? Well, the Pharisees and the Jews who, again, had the Old Testament and the concept of hesed, having completely misunderstood the law they were given, missed the concept of hesed, and actually began to assimilate into the Greco-Roman culture of the day, which was not a culture of, uh, I will supply for your needs because a great God has supplied for my own needs. Rather, it was a, a culture of reciprocity that, hey, I'll I'll do this for you as long as you can do this other thing for me. I'll scratch your back if you can scratch mine. The Pharisees, having completely misunderstood the Old Testament, the, the entire crux of the Old Testament, you get what you don't deserve, show that love to others, they completely get sucked into the culture around them. And it's one of reciprocity. And so when Jesus is explaining these parables. He's doing it in light of the Pharisees who know the law in terms of head knowledge, but have no idea what it looks like to live that out. And instead of actually living out the law, they have pridefully taken the law, clung to it themselves, and then gone off and acted like pagans because they've completely misunderstood the Old Testament concept of said They've misunderstood the gospel. And so that's, that's the cultural setting uh, in which Jesus is living at this time. The Jews had abandoned the very teaching that they held so closely as their own and as nobody else's. Okay, we've got down the cultural setting. 
where is Jesus at the time this parable is told? Well, we need to backtrack first to uh, the first indicator of a location change from the last instance that Jesus was actually teaching. So if you have your Bibles open, flip back one page to chapter 14, Luke chapter 14. This is actually the first instance that we have of Jesus changing locations from where he was before. Jesus, he's, he's at dinner with Pharisees, a ruler of the Pharisees, and it's clear from the rest of the text that other Pharisees are with him. They were watching him carefully, verse 14, uh, 14 verse 1. <clears throat> Ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. Uh, as we go on to look, if you have a red-letter Bible like mine, you can see the difference between uh, the speech of Jesus and the actual narrative of the story. And so it's easy to pinpoint location changes, easy to pinpoint um, who Jesus is talking to, who he's speaking to. But chapter 14, verse 1, is a fair, valid assessment that this is where Jesus is beginning to teach, is beginning to talk. There's a few thinner lines of change in, verse, in chapter 15, but never are we told, we don't have any other indicator that Jesus leaves the location or that Jesus, uh, a day has gone by. So it's safe to assume based on how we understand scripture, that Jesus is in the same place in chapter 16 as he was in chapter 14. So look at 14.11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What a fitting thesis in light of the theme of Luke-Acts. That's precisely what Luke has been writing about. That's precisely what he continues to write about in Acts. The exalted are humbled, and the humbled are exalted. The ones who we thought were in are actually out, but the ones who were outsiders before are actually welcomed in. Verse 11 actually follows Jesus' admonition of the Pharisees who sat at more important places at the table. Again, they had misunderstood the concept of being brought low, and so what do they do? They take the highest seats at the table. And Jesus tells them, in the parable of the wedding feast, don't take the highest seat of honor lest somebody comes to you and says, hey, can you actually take a lower seat? Rather, sit at the lowest spot so that someone might come to you and say, hey, can you sit in a higher seat of honor? Be humbled and you'll be exalted. Be exalted and you'll be humbled. A fitting thesis for the parable and for the entirety of Luke-Acts. So, um, the next section, this banquet parable, verse uh, 14, verse 12, is one of the first and clearest instances we have of who's in and who's out in this whole pericope. The Jews who were invited to the party, having the Old Testament concept of hesed, or loving kindness, or, or steadfast love of God, as it's often translated, um, completely fail to demonstrate that's with that which they claim to know and hold so well. Because all the uh, invitees all give excuses for not coming to the party, um, I got this going on, I'm supposed to do this, the master of the house ends up inviting all the poor and all the crippled and all the lame and all the blind 
the very ones who you thought were outsiders from the beginning, they end up being the ones who actually come to the party. And the ones who were invited say, hey, sorry, can't make it. Interesting. Truly, this is a picture of the thesis of chapter 14, verse 11. The exalted have been humbled, and the humbled have been exalted. When those who should respond well to the gospel don't respond, the invitation is taken away to the ones who will. Imagine the lame and the poor and the blind and the crippled hearing that this this rich person said, hey, come to my house, because all these others have said no. What a delight, what a joy it must have been to hear, hold, hold up a second, are we coming to your house? We're, we're poor and blind and crippled and lame. Well, guess what? The ones who I invited said no. And I want you to come. What a, what a picture of the gospel. What a picture of that thesis. The ones who are humbled will be exalted. This theme continues throughout the rest of chapter 14. It can be summarized by throwing off the things of this world and this life and taking willingly the difficulty of the broken world. Verse 25 in chapter 14, Jesus says, this is what discipleship is going to look like. This is what it looks like to follow me. Um, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his own mother, and his wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus makes it abundantly clear, this is what it looks like to follow me. You, You truly lay off all the things of this world, you are brought low, you are humbled, and then you'll be exalted. Chapter 15, the lost, par- the lost chapter, as it's often called. You have the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the prodigal son. The ones who are lost have been regained. Jesus provides further insight into the flipped dynamic of understanding of who's in God's family and who's out in this chapter. Parable of the lost sheep, he says something that would most likely rub the Pharisees the wrong way when he says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who are righteous. Imagine as a Pharisee, if you had kept the law, supposedly kept the law your entire life, blameless. Remember what Paul says uh, in his letter, in his epistle, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, blameless. That's the life that the Pharisees lived. Imagine hearing Jesus say, guess what? There's more joy in heaven when a sinner repents, one sinner, than if there are 99 people who keep the law. Certainly that would have rubbed the Pharisees the wrong way. At the very least would have caused them to perk up a little bit and say, hang on a second, Uh, that does not sound right, Jesus. Sounds like you've completely uh, lost your mind. The law is, is meant to be upheld. The law is not meant to be not upheld and then repented over and then held. What a flip. What a dynamic. Again, Jesus drives home the idea in the parable of the lost sheep that those who are exalted will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. This culminates in the parable of the prodigal son in which Jesus emphasizes the joy received over the repentance of one versus the the supposed righteousness of another. For there's indeed joy over a sinner who repents. And yet the parable of the prodigal son also highlights the self-righteous hearts of the Pharisees who believe that God owes them something for their law-keeping. They they view the law as a scorekeeper, 
that if they keep the law, remember they, they were uh, engrafted into the reciprocity culture of the day. They believed that if they kept the law, they were owed something by God. Lord, I've done this over here, so I expect this over here. I've, I've, I've held up my end of the bargain for you, so God, I expect you hold up your end of the bargain. Bless me on this end. And that's works righteousness. That's the basis of what it means to uh, live in a way that we earn our salvation, which of course is not the gospel. For a long time, that's how I myself viewed the gospel, that it was a, a work to be done rather than a truth to be received and meditated upon and lived out. So the Pharisees hear this. They believe God owes them something. They're inaccurately keeping score. And so we finally get to the uh, beginning of our parable. So verse uh, chapter 16, verse 1, and I'm running out of time. Um, a rich man had a manager, had an estate. This manager was in charge of the state, clearly was mismanaging that which was given to him by the rich man, the master. The master says, all right, you're out of here. You're done. See ya. The manager says, uh-oh. I have, I've blown it. I have not been doing the thing that I should have been doing. What am I going to do? I'm, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig ditches. I'm too ashamed to beg. What a, what a pitiful, pathetic response that this manager says, ah, yeah, I have really been unfaithful, but I'm too proud to beg. Um, I'm too weak to actually do manual labor. What a pitiful, pitiful, pathetic individual. And yet, he recognizes his inability. He recognizes that he is too weak to dig. He is too ashamed to beg. Interesting. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go to the people so that when I lose my job, I'll be received well. And so he goes to his master's debtors, says, tell me, one by one, tell me, what do you owe my master? Oh, a hundred measures of oil. Gotcha. Take your bill, scratch through that, write 50. Next guy, what do you owe my master? hundred measures of wheat. Gotcha. Take your bill, scratch through that, write 80. I think I got those reversed. 80 to the oil, 50 to the wheat. <clears throat> the manager begins to actually do that which he should have been doing all along which was being a, a debt slasher to the ones who were in debt to his master. Some people look at this parable and they think, well, the, the manager was actually just kind of taking a little bit off the top, and so uh, historically he was, and so he decided, I'm going to stop doing that, and I'm going to actually start charging the people what they actually owe. That's, that's fine. I, I don't think that's a fair reading of, of this passage. I don't see that anywhere in the text. I think it is... Um, doing ill will to the text if we do anything except see and, and pull out that which is there. So I think this guy actually says, I need to be welcomed by these people. So the very thing that he should have been doing all along, he actually gets it and begins to do. In light of the theme of Luke Acts, I believe that we can read the parable in this way remembering that the manager was actually commended by his master. 
in light of the grand theme of Luke Acts, I think we can read it this way. The master is God. That's indisputed among people who interpret this parable. The riches I would like to offer are not financial riches, but are gospel riches, which were given to the shrewd manager or the Jews who had received that which was not theirs and had mishandled that which they had been given. That they had received the Old Testament written down word of God containing Hesed, containing the promise of the Messiah, and had completely mishandled it. Were unfaithful with the riches they were given. The fact that Jesus brings salvation, they had completely missed it. They were unfaithful. The manager being the people of God who had received that which was theirs um, and failed in their mission to take the good news of the gospel to the world. So the true manager gets fired, having squandered what was his master's. And the Jewish leaders to whom Jesus was talking, they would have been the bad managers. They would have been the ones that had squandered the riches they received and were in a really bad spot. They were in a bind. They poorly managed that which was given to them by God. And so the master himself, providing the good news of the gospel, sees the pathetic nature of the manager. Um, the manager says, I got to change. I got to start doing something. Jesus, having just spoken to the Pharisees and to the scribes, turns and says this parable to his disciples. It's important to bear in mind that he was speaking to his disciples, not to a crowd. Because what were the disciples going to be after Jesus ascended into heaven? They were going to be those who had received the gospel riches and actually did take it to the world. They were going to be good managers, not unfaithful managers. So Jesus tells this to them, beginning of, verse, of chapter 16, we see that in verse 1. He said this to his disciples, and he d- explains the whole parable. The shrewd manager in the parable finally gets it. I need to show this has said to others. The ones who are in debt with the master, we can view those as the people who are actually enslaved to their sin and in need of salvation. The debtors are the ones who require that which the master offers. And the good managers, the disciples, will begin to actually take that to the nations. The master commends the shrewd manager in verse 8. Because despite his initial idiocy, he finally realizes what he should have been doing in the first place and actually begins to do it. It's a, it's a manipulation of the Greco-Roman power system that was based on reciprocity. Uh, Jesus takes that and turns it on its head. That which the managers of God's wealth should have been doing, they start doing as the only logical recourse The only thing they can do is is start doing that which they should have been doing the whole time. And they realize their failure and their inadequacy and utilize the little time they have left to share with the debtors what they can, the gospel riches which they've been given. The things which the Lord's given us, we are to use to minister and evangelize to the world that they might know the heavenly riches we've received. What do we do with this? How can we apply this parable to our own lives. I had a pastor back in Columbia who used to say, what does this mean for Monday? 
I might even amend that and say, what does this mean for Tuesday at 2.30 in the afternoon when we've forgotten Monday, we've forgotten Sunday altogether? A genuine understanding of the gospel produces gospel spreading. A genuine faith is a working faith, not a works righteousness faith that that says we, we do something in order to earn our salvation, but rather a faith that genuinely understands the gospel is impacted and its life looks completely different. It's not this picture of this picture of doing to earn something, but rather it's let me tell you what I have received because it's awesome. When we think about that which has been given to us, the only logical recourse, as for the shrewd manager, is to go and take the gospel to the nations, which is precisely what the disciples did. And think about this too. Who was the greatest picture of a previously bad manager who understood it and actually took the gospel to the nations. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who was himself formerly a Pharisee. What redemption of the apostle Paul. If, if this is foreign to you, this concept of hesed, if it, if it is something that you uh, have never meditated on or have never seen in the scriptures, I urge you, turn to the cross, turn to Jesus, in this Advent season, we, we aren't simply excited about the birth of the baby Messiah, but we contemplate that which Jesus came to do. Jesus was born so that he might go to the cross and die. And if this concept of loving kindness, which God has shown the Jews, God has shown the Gentiles, God has shown us, if that's foreign, run to Jesus. If you're a confessing believer and you've heard this a million times, Maybe you've grown dull to it. Turn again to the cross because it's sustenance provides for us time and time again. Danny said this morning that that we can never, uh, maybe it was Jordan in his prayer this morning said that we burn through God's grace like jet fuel. And yet, praise God that he has an unending supply of this jet fuel that is actually required for our salvation. As we come to this table here in a few minutes, um, to quote from the psalm that I was originally supposed to preach on, Psalm 34, come again, taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, we love you, and we realize that we misunderstand the gospel all the time. Our hearts are wayward. Lord, our affections are unchanged so often. Lord, work in our hearts that we might not forget that, that which we've been given, but might actually recognize the joy that it is to take the good news of the gospel, love others with that good news. Lord, change our hearts, change our affections. Would our lives actually be working faiths in action? Use us, Lord, not for our glory, but for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.